Merry Christmas. You look so happy. Merry Christmas. Okay. I'll be speaking on Christmas today. How you know joyous isn't this is? So hopefully, in light of the passage, we'll all be more joyful. <laughs> But gracing you all, I know it's uh, pretty cold outside. But I hope everybody's doing well, healthy. Uh, and I know. Oh, oh great. <laughs> no worries. Um, it's probably my fault because, just so you know, I, me and uh, technology don't really get along pretty well. So something always goes wrong. So uh, I must have done something. But I know that students are having finals right now. So if you are uh, in that camp, I you know, hope you. Uh, you know, stay strong. You know, finish strong. Uh, I'll be praying that God will strengthen you uh, during this time to honor Him well during this season, during this exam period, and also pray uh, for the rest of us. You know, who are uh, fighting your uh, different battles in your different callings uh, each and every day, uh, that God would you know shower you with His grace, uh, so you can honor Him well as well in your work and family and other callings. Uh, without any further ado, uh, let's go into the time of the passage, time of the word. Um, like I said, today uh, we will be looking at a Christmas passage as well as next week, which is a Christmas day. You know, we'll have our regular service and get to celebrate uh, Christmas uh, through that time. Uh, today we'll look at uh, Isaiah 9, and the next week we'll look at Matthew uh, 2. In fact, same passage as uh, the one that uh, Nathan used for his call to worship passage. Uh, may we get to be filled with uh, you know his presence and his joy again uh, through uh, these two weeks uh, where we get to see uh, Christmas passages together. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter nine, verses two through seven. Isaiah. Nine two through seven. Ready for us? Let's uh, please follow along as I read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken or shattered, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and of over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is God's word. Uh, since we already prayed, we'll go straight into uh, the time of the word. Uh, three points for us. Those are the darkness, the perfect peace, and the prince of peace. And the title for this message is The Peace of Christmas. Uh, first, uh, the darkness. The darkness. Verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Here the prophet Isaiah is prophesying into the future, as you can see uh, or tell from uh, the reading of this passage just now. And interestingly, the tenses of the verbs uh, are in the past uh, because you know, from God's perspective, uh, that Isaiah is speaking or peering into uh, in this prophecy. Uh, what will happen in the future, you know, from God, it's already happened. That's why it's in past tenses. Just kind of give you an idea why uh, these are in past tenses. But the content of the prophecy is this, that we just read from the verse. Uh, he's saying, Isaiah is saying that there will be a time when a great light will shine on people who are in darkness. That, that's the point here. And in the following verses, Isaiah will spell out for us uh, what this light or who this light is and you know, what it does to people. But for now, uh, what we need to fo- focus on is the current state of the people in this verse or in this passage. And, and that state is utter darkness, utter darkness. Uh, but before jumping into assuming what this means, what darkness means, uh, it's uh, instructive for us to see this in the context, because we always want to uh, see the meaning in the context. That's what uh, our job is as reader of the Bible. And we find the meaning of darkness uh, in chapter 8. So follow with me. Uh, in chapter 8, uh, verses 19 and 22, it says this. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And they will look to the, the earth But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Uh, Here the context is that the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, are in deep trouble. You know, they're surrounded by powerful enemies such as the Assyrian kingdom. And in that situation, uh, these people, instead of seeking God for help and guidance, Apparently, they are seeking the mediums or fortune tellers. And Isaiah says that this will plunge them into deeper darkness. 
So we get the idea that darkness in this context specifically refers to the state without God. Hope you're following with me so far. The state without God, that's what darkness means. Uh, for the Jews in the situation, um, it, it was dark and helpless because you know they were facing their enemies without God, right? But then they're choosing to uh, resolve the situation by their own means, you know, by looking to the mediums and so forth, and they're pushing God farther away. So they are going into deeper darkness over and over. Uh, but this idea of darkness being away from God uh, or, or the, the self-reliant tendency uh, to solve problems uh, comes all the way from Genesis 3, where we see Adam and Eve you know, listen to Satan, and they eat the fruit with the hope that they would be like God, right? That they would have God's wisdom and be like him and to replace him even. And since then, you know, humans have been trying to live their lives, you know, by their own wisdom. That's called sin. That's called, again, darkness. Trying to replace God. And as they do that, as they try to find their own solution apart from God, the result, unfortunately, is, uh, you know, emptiness, fear, and despair. They cannot fix their own problems. In fact, it gets worse and worse. Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, if you go to the next slide, um, who is uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, said this in his own autobiography called Confessions, saying, But my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, not in God, but myself and his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. I have a friend uh, from my high school days. Um, I'll call him a guy who's got it all. Uh, you know, his father owns this you know big, thriving international trading business. Uh, so my friend had his own credit card that seemed to have no credit limit on it because he kept using it without limit in high school. And he, at the time, was driving all these fancy cars, you name it. You know, I'm not going to name any, but you name it. You, you think about what those might be. You know, it starts with A and C. Anyways, and expensive clothes and all these you know, jewelries. And less of all, he was good-looking too. He was very popular among girls, and he always had a girlfriend. Always. I can remember a single time he didn't have a girlfriend. So that's him. And him and I, you know, we we're, were close friends uh, from high school days, and uh, we kept in touch even though, uh, you know, he, went to, he went, ended up going to Europe for school and, and things like that. But we kept kept in touch. He kept calling me, and we would talk time to time. Um, but whenever he called me through those years, um, he would always uh, talk for hours about how empty and 
dissatisfying his life was. Uh, but whenever he said that, I'll always go, are you serious? Are you kidding me? You got everything. Everything that you know, people long for. But there he was. You know, he constantly shared about you know, the pain even and agony of his life. And this one day, he called me and told me that he was in Hawaii. I was like, okay. But he was telling me that uh, he went there after leaving everything behind in order to join a Christian camp there for a year. And he told me that he never felt freedom and happiness ever in his whole life until then. It's interesting, isn't it? Our life uh, is supposed to be happy if we have you know, everything we need externally. Um, but what we find out is that those things that we try to fix our lives with plunge us deeper into darkness. Because only when our life is with God, it is truly fulfilling. So my question is this before we go any further. Is your life uh, darkness or light? I think one uh, litmus test for that is the question, you know, what do you do when you encounter a trouble, encounter a situation, whether big or small? Like, what, what's the first thing you do? Uh, is the first thing you do prayer? You know, even like one second. Uh, do you, meaning, do you first seek God and His solution and then move on to, you know, other, you know, solutions that you may have in your hand? any options in your life? Or is your habit and pattern uh, going first to lay out all the options that you have and choose one that is most logical to you? The second way, nothing's wrong with it. It's not sinful in and of itself. But if there's no God in it, if your pattern is constantly going to human solution, then what's going to happen is that we may be used to the temporary pleasures that we get from solving these problems, but may miss out on what God can do in your life to grow you to become more dependent on Him instead of yourself. Meaning, we may be led into darkness by those small uh, decision-making process moments and may end up getting the pain, confusion, and error that Augustine is talking about. The darkness, we may be in it too. Second, the perfect peace. Now, so we move on and go on in the, the vision of Isaiah and we see that the light has come And we're about to see that the final result of the light in the world is stunning. Stunning. So follow with me. Verse 3. It says, You, God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
apparently there's a tangible joy here. You know, uh, Isaiah mentions that it's like when there is a harvest of food, or even like when they divide the spoils of war after a victory over their enemies. Uh, meaning, you know, just just as we know how it feels when we eat really delicious food in abundance, and also, you know, how we know how it feels when we win in a competition or things like that. You know, Isaiah is saying that the joy that he's talking about is that tangible. You can feel it. But at the same time, he he tells us that this joy is ultimate. It's not you know, temporal that you get from these material things. Because he says this joy is before God, the one who can truly satisfy us. So he's talking about this lasting true joy. So that's the, the snapshot of what the light can do in this prophecy. And then we go on. Verse 4, it says, The yoke of his burden... And the staff of, of for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. I just saying that there will be joy because God has freed people from all forms of oppression. Um, at that time, the Assyrians, the, the arch enemy of uh, Israel and Judah, they took pride in putting heavy yokes you know, uh, on their captives like they would on, you know, animals like cows. You might have seen the pictures like that. What that means is, when we say oppression, uh, it means when a person or group treats other human beings uh, in inhuman ways or even animal-like ways and they subjugate them, make treat them like slaves, control them, uh, by which... They're essentially denying them the dignity and respect that they deserve as the image bearers of God. That's oppression. So on a you know, societal level, that includes obviously racism, sexism, you know, abuse of any kind, and especially human trafficking. That's like literally treating people as slaves, right? These are oppressions. But if we were to go a little deeper into more internal uh, realm, uh, you know, oppression fundamentally includes uh, sin in every human heart because sin yokes us uh, to desire and do things contrary to God's law. And I think a good example is addictions, right? You know, addictions, things that we are addicted to, whatever that might be. Um, you know, it, it yokes us and um, you know, makes us uh, live like you know, animals. We, we cannot control ourselves. It's slavery. It's oppression. But Isaiah says, when his light shines, God will break or shatter, in Hebrew, all of these oppressions, all kinds of oppressions. And the median, the word median there, of course, refers to the, the story of Gideon that we looked at last week, how God supernaturally delivered the oppression of medians on the Israelites, you know, only with 300 soldiers against, you know, 100,000 soldiers of Midian. 
just like that, God will free his people supernaturally uh, because no humans can uh, free themselves from those oppressions. Meaning, in light of the light of God, you know, there will be true freedom on top of true joy. But there's one more. Verse 5. For every boot of uh, the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burnt as fuel for the fire. If you can just imagine that scene and picture of what this verse is trying to depict here. Meaning that the boot, the military, you know, sandals or boots, and garment, which is military uniform, it's going to be burnt as a fuel for fire. Meaning, there's, there will be a day when there will be no more wars, no more fight or conflict of any kind. No more. God will destroy wars. There will be perfect peace in the world. You know, people and nations will no longer try to oppress one another through the wars. You know, we will not going to be, we're not going to be hurt by one another anymore. There will be perfect peace in any relationships. And that peace, we have to uh, understand that fundamentally happens because there is a peace between us and God. You see, the reason why there are conflicts in the world is because, uh, you know, the sin makes us want to be self-reliant. We saw that darkness, right? We're, we want to be apart from God and become, you know, kings and queens ourselves, and we want to rule over other people. That's why there are conflicts, you know, between uh, relationships. But when God frees us from our sins, and, and you know, when we get to submit ourselves to God's rule now, we all of a sudden love and serve other people instead of ruling over other people. That's how true peace have, happens in, in the world. So these three things, joy, freedom, and no more war, peace. What, what Isaiah is saying is, there will be a day when there will be a perfect world. Perfect peace. Perfect everything. No more tears, no more anything that, will, uh, that has been bothering us in our lives. And as we look at that, now I want us to come down to the earth and see the dissonance between the ideal and the present. Because, if we're honest, if we go onto our news app or TV, you know, we see literally the opposite of the picture, right? You know, we see sadness in, instead of joy. We see all kinds of oppressions instead of freedom every day. And we see wars and conflicts instead of peace. So what's going on? You know, how are we to process this? What's happening here is that Isaiah is depicting, drawing a perfect picture for us to look at 
and then live our present lives accordingly with a purpose and hope. Let me give an example or illustrate that with, with the, this example. If you go to the next slide, um, do you know who Bob Ross is? Show of hands. Thank you. Wow, okay. So he's a very iconic figure, right? You know, from 80s and 90s. And he's had his own show on TV. And, uh, you know, he would uh, paint, like, this landscape, uh, you know, scenes from a blank canvas, you know, f- from scratch. And he would show, he would teach viewers how to do that step by step. That's, that's the whole premise of his shows. And I grew up watching this show. Um, it's just a very soothing voice, too. So I don't know, students, if you are stressed out this week from finals, maybe you can watch some of his videos on YouTube. But uh, he's just very talented. I think he's really good at teaching, you know, how to uh, make masterpieces, you know, from, from scratch. But I think one thing that I really found uh, fascinating about his shows uh, is that uh, even though at the end there's masterpiece, the process is kind of interesting and even weird. He always, maybe go to the next slide, uh, like he does kind of, he has like strokes and brushes that look kind of mismatching. Like in the picture, he's obviously drawing or painting uh, trees in the middle of a lake. And you go like, ah, that won't, that won't match. Like, what are you trying to do, Ross? I don't think that's going to work out. But then, voila, next slide. Oh, masterpiece. Um, because, you know, you shouldn't doubt Ross. You know, he knows what he's doing. Even though there are strokes like that that are mismatching in the process, at the end, there's masterpiece. God is a master painter who is painting a masterpiece throughout history. And the end product will be the picture that we just saw that Isaiah painted for us. It'll look amazing. Again, perfect joy, perfect freedom, perfect peace. It'll be astounding. It would be perfect. But right now, we're in the process, aren't we? So we see some questionable strokes and brushes. I mean, there's brokenness in the world, you know, brokenness in our lives, oppression, wars. What's up with that? But would you please not doubt God? Because He is surely including those interesting strokes and brushes in the painting as a part of the masterpiece. We don't know what's happening right now in the process, but at the end, we will see that there is a masterpiece that we cannot question at that point. So what that means is as we look at the picture that Isaiah drew for us from God, our job is to trust God's goodness and his sovereignty and live in the present with hope and even engage 
in this world to join God in restoring the world, restoring from brokenness of the world. And, and that's what God is calling us to do as we look at this perfect picture. God is bringing beauty out of the ashes right now. And lastly, we'll look at that God has given us a sign so we can believe what we just looked at. Believe in his perfect picture. So last, the Prince of Peace. Verse 6, it says, famous verse, right? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Here, I just simply saying that there is a king coming on whose shoulder is the government. There's a king coming. But this is not just another king, you see, because there are some, you know, peculiar, peculiar, um, traits about this king. Because we first look at how this king is divine. He's divine. We, we know that from his four names. Wonderful counselor, meaning his counsel and wisdom is beyond this world. So it's wonderful. And he's, in fact, God, mighty God. Can, can't be any more obvious than that, uh, direct than that. His God who works, you know, mighty salvation for his people. And then everlasting father, it means he eternally cares and shepherds his people, even at the cost of his own life, just as a good father would do. And then lastly, prince of peace. Prince of Peace. Uh, prince, by the way, it's um, just think of it as the same word as king. Uh, if, you, if, you, if that bothers you, uh, it's uh, not. I think scholars say it comes from uh, the word uh, uh, king from Assyrian language. Anyways, so it's, it's, it means king. Uh, it means that this king will usher in the peace that we looked at in the previous verse. He will usher in the peace and also, um, you know, sustain the peace in the world. So this is king, but divine king. God, mighty God. But then, there's a big surprise. Isaiah also says that this divine king will be born. Will be born as a child. I think this should come as a big shock, shocker for the, the readers. Because it isn't logical or natural thing for readers to expect uh, at this point. Maybe this king should come out of nowhere from heaven like a lightning bolt. Like with a big flash and, you know, with the big show of his display of power and majesty. Why? Should this king be born and become like us? It's a, it's a mystery. Until 
we see Jesus Christ, the antitype of this prophecy. Because Jesus Christ, who was the second person of triune God, the divine deity, he became human on Christmas and was born indeed as a child. And he did that because that was the only way he could usher in the perfect peace for his people. Why? Because holy God cannot tolerate or even make peace with sinful human beings like you and I. No way. If he tolerates it, then he's not God. He's a holy God. In order for people, sinful people like you and I, to make peace with God, we need a perfect cover, perfect atonement. And Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. Because he became fully human, he was born so that he could die for another human being. Because if God, only God dies another human being, it doesn't sound valid. But if a human being dies for another human being, it is valid. But at the same time, because he's fully God, his sacrifices of infinite value that can cover multitude of people, not just one another person. He is a perfect sacrifice. And that's why when one puts their faith in Christ, their sins are completely paid for when just on the cross, and instead they gain his perfect righteousness. The great exchange happens, and the great peace happens because we're completely justified before God. And now there's a peace between us and God. And from there on, we can extend the same peace to other people because we can extend God's mercy and forgiveness to other people. Because there's a peace between us and God, now there's peace between us and other humans. So you see, Jesus is that child king whom Isaiah is prophesying here. And even following the, the Mark series, we, we see this because Jesus was indeed born as a real human being and he walked on earth and he inaugurated the kingdom and he brought joy, freedom, and peace to the people that he ministered to. He healed them. He freed them from oppression of sickness and demons. That's what we've been looking at the past couple of months. And when he comes back the second time, he will consummate the kingdom and make the joy, freedom, peace complete in his people and in the world. That's the storyline, and that's what Isaiah is prophesying. And Jesus is the antitype, the fulfillment of the prophecy. So full circle here. What this means is when we face Christmas, when we celebrate Christmas, what that means is that it's a sign that God is faithful to Isaiah's prophecy. And that when we look at Christmas, when we see that Christ has come, that he was born, that means that's a, it's a solid, concrete pledge that another promise in the prophecy, namely, 
perfect universe, perfect life, perfect joy and freedom and peace will also be kept true. Christmas ensures that we will be perfect. My uh, look next slide. My former uh, seminary professor here uh, named Dr. Pluterman and his wife here, Carol. Uh, just lovely people, lovely people. And he, they were uh, missionaries in Nigeria for a long time, uh, 13 years in total, I believe. And uh, and Dr. Pluterman posted a journal entry, I think, uh, written by Carol on social media a couple of years ago. And I, it really touched my heart when I was reading it. It was about Christmas, and so I wanted to share that with you uh, in order to apply this passage together. So let me uh, read uh, this entry. It's a little long, but follow with me. Uh, It's a journal entry that Carol wrote when she was in Nigeria in her early 20s. The title is, Into the Chaos, a Child. An aching homesickness accentuated the morning sickness I was feeling that Christmas of 1967. Pregnant and far from home, I felt a small sense of kinship with Mary, but nothing else fit my expectation of Christmas. As new missionaries, room room number 11 was our home in Kano, Nigeria, while we studied the the Hausa language. It was hard to feel celebratory in this small guest house room with its cement floor and cockroaches. We had two single beds pushed together and canopied with nets to protect us from malarial mosquitoes. Still, our walls were frequently smudged with mosquitoes and the dry blood they had sucked from our limbs. Arriving in Nigeria, we found a country torn in civil conflict, a war. Though we weren't in the war zone, the whole country was extremely tense. But news from home was also troubling. There was uh, bombs exploding in Vietnam. And Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Detroit was on fire. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. The Democratic Convention turned Chicago into a battle zone. And we were bringing a child into this chaos. Peace on earth, goodwill towards all people, the angel said. We had come as ambassadors of this peace, as though God were making his appeal through us. Through us. What a lofty assignment for two green recruits in their early 20s. Yet, it is the same call that God's people have answered through the generations. God ministered his peace to us at that time. And the unencumbered nativity we experienced as newcomers in Nigeria is still one of our sweetest Christmas memories ever. And still today, God calls us to be 
ministers of reconciliation. Because God in Christ is still reconciling the world to himself and us to one another. Christ was born for this. What Carol is saying in this journal is that you know, in the midst of chaos that she was experiencing in Nigeria and also back home, um, you know, she was, she was experiencing at the same time God's peace on that Christmas in 1967. It's because of the promise of Christmas that we just studied in this passage that God ushers peace to his people and eventually the perfect peace. But what encourages me the most about this entry is this, that the peace that she was feeling was not simply psychological, you see. That peace propelled her and Dr. Plutterman into action. They were trying to be faithful as peacemakers in the world, in, in Nigeria, in that terrible living circumstance. Because the, the peace that they, they felt was not to be hoarded to themselves, but to be shared. Meaning, they were to participate in what God is doing to restore the world. Peace was making that active to the point that they dedicated their 20s and 30s, young period, like perhaps many of us here in this room, for the Lord, because of the peace that they felt from Christmas. Now, I wish I could say that the world has become more calm since then. I would argue that it's gotten even more chaotic. The few years were, you know, un- unprecedented global pandemic. And there is war in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world that even the news media is not covering, that I only hear from my friends in, in those areas. And there are political and economic unrest in this country right now where people are increasingly uh, hostile to one another. But in that, in this chaotic world, now the question is, would we try to fix those problems and my problems and your problems by relying on our own means? and plunge into deeper darkness? Or would we find hope and peace in God through the sign of Christmas, having more bold faith in what God can do in the future and through us in the present? And will we take action? Let's pray together. Let's uh, spend... So a little more time uh, in prayer uh, before uh, I close in prayer for us and uh, give benediction. Um, let us apply this passage to our lives. And um, if you uh, were here uh, when we were studying Mark 4, uh, there it talks about how the word comes to us 
whenever we um, you know, preach the word uh, in church, in other settings. Um, and when the word comes, um, the ones that bear fruit are the ones that actually apply the word in every single area of their lives. So I want to encourage our church right now, as we just heard the word, unless this, this is applied, it'll just be um, taken away by Satan and no fruit. So I want to encourage us right now. Um, the question is, uh, as we hear about the peace of Christ that is present in Christmas, and that compels us to look to the future of perfect peace, how we can in the present rest in Him um, and have hope in Him. And that propels us to uh, you know, be active in peacemaking and ministering to the people around us and uh, spreading the gospel in our respective callings um, and glorifying God. So what would that mean to you if the gospel, uh, this truth of peace of God um, enters your heart? Uh, what does it mean that you participate in what God is doing in the world? You know, could it mean that those friends in your, in your life that God has given you, not by accident but by His sovereign hand, or some family members who may not know this peace of Christ. Co-workers even. Uh, the pe- people and the relationship that God has given us. What would it mean that we actually live out this peace of Christ and act on it? Let's think about that. Let's search our hearts that, that God Um, search our hearts and help us to actually bear fruit of this word Uh, as we do that uh, let me uh, close in prayer for us but let's really uh, hold on to this time together as a church uh, have God uh, speak into us uh, as we apply his word let's pray God thank you for uh, your word uh, that you pursue after us this Sunday afternoon and uh, speak to us in our different circumstances and situations of our lives, God. Uh, oh, Lord, um, change us. God, we acknowledge that we're so prone to fix our problems and fix our chaos um, through different means that we can control or avoid or freeze or look to other things. We do everything except turning to you, Lord. Lord, help us. Change us. So we'll be people who rely on you for every single thing of our lives and find solution and light in you. And as we do that, Lord, um, please show us how we can be your ambassadors how we can uh, make peace how we can um, you know, go from here and spread the joy of Christmas 
for those who are still in darkness, those who are still, for whom um, the only solution is human ways. How can we, Lord, be used by you? So, Lord, as we approach our Christmas uh, this season, this year, may touch our hearts um, help us go beyond the, the festivities um, the injected meetings that may be foreign to um, you know, our belief and what the Bible says and help us uphold you and celebrate you as the hope of the world that we have a bright perfect future help us live it out encourage those who are discouraged in this room and help us to enjoy you during this season as well now please receive the benediction it comes from um, numbers 6 and the second corinthians 13 14 here uh, god's very words blessing you pronouncing uh, good words to bless you this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's be seated.